Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at International Cinema at Brigham Young University. This podcast is our 10th of BYU's winter semester 2022. I'm Doug Weatherford, co-director of International Cinema, and I'm joined by Greg Stallings. Greg is a recent IC co-director. He specializes in 20th century Spanish poetry and critical literary theory, and his academic endeavors often combine interests in literature, music, and film. In other words, Greg is a perfect guest to discuss the Spanish film Blood Wedding, showing this week at International Cinema as part of a series on music and dance. Welcome, Greg. Thank you, Doug. It's a privilege to be here. Well, we're thrilled to have you here, and I might point out that Greg is actually joining us from Spain, where he is serving as director of the Spain Study Abroad program this semester, so we're thrilled that you were able to make time for us. I'll also mention that Greg and I both teach in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese, although he specializes in Spain and I in Mexico. We both have a deep admiration for Spanish language film and for the writing of Spanish playwright and poet Federico Garcia Lorca. In fact, uh, Greg, one of the things that I think is really fun about this film is that it connects to so many individuals that are of real importance in uh, 20th century Spanish culture, literature, art, music, dance, and film, including, for example, Carlos Saura, Antonio Gades, the dancer, and uh, Federico Garcia Lorca. And I thought that perhaps you could just start us out by telling us a little bit about these individuals and why they're important, why we should care. And I think you'll probably start with Garcia Lorca, who is one of the great, iconic intellectuals, writers, artists from Spain. Thank you, Doug. I really appreciate that. It's great to start with Lorca, who the listeners may not know, especially those that are not studying Spanish at BYU that he is often considered to be the most important poet in Spain since the golden age, Lope de Vega and Quevedo and Góngora and these giants. Many people would say he's the most important writer in the history of Spain besides Cervantes. So he's a hugely important figure. And uh, he was from a very wealthy family living in a very small town near Granada, Fuente Baqueros. His father made a killing in the early 20th century with the cultivation of sugar beets when Spain lost its last colonial possessions in 1898, which is precisely the year that Lorca was born. His father invested in sugar beets and had a huge property in the Vega, which was west of Granada, and it was nourished by the rivers flowing down from the Sierra Madre. And so he grew up in this very idyllic setting, which he kept with him his entire life. And he said, for example, my whole childhood was centered on the village. Shepherds, fields, sky, solitude, pure simplicity. I'm often surprised when people think that the things in my work are daring improvisations of my own, a poet's audacities. Not at all. They're authentic details, and they seem strange to a lot of people because it's, it's not often that we approach life in such a simple, straightforward fashion. Looking and listening, I have a huge storehouse of childhood recollections in which I can hear the people speaking. This is a poetic memory, and I trust it implicitly. End of quote. This is like a beautiful quote, because he's saying basically that he grew up alongside peasants and workers, and those were his people. Even though he was a rich boy, he really identified with the marginalized people of Andalusia. And he was fascinated by its multi-layers of history and the entire region of Andalusia, the entire country of Spain, but especially Andalusia, is like this incredible layer 
upon layer of civilizations of the past. You look to the right in one area of Andalusia, and you'll see Moorish Castle, you know, Castle of the Muslims that were here in Spain, 17, or I'm sorry, 711 to 1492. You look to the left, and you'll see Jewish synagogues. And so he was just fascinated by the diverse past of Andalusia, which, you know, still to this day, everywhere you look, you find traces or relics of the Romans, the Visigoths, the Jews, Arabs, Arab Muslims, African Muslims, and of course, the gypsies. And why the gypsies? Because the gypsies were these incredibly marginalized people suffering racism and discrimination till this very day. There's so much hatred towards the gypsies, which, which is just astounding, even in modern progressive liberal Spain. And so he just loved these experiences. And all this fed his, you know, recollection of memories, which he called in this citation, the storehouse of childhood recollections. He had like this photographic memory. He would just call up, recall a song that he heard at the age of six from the maid or, you know, a rhyme, which he heard at the age of four from field workers. All this went into all of his works, but especially Boleste song at a blood wedding. According to himself, a second quote here, I love the land. I feel linked to it in all my emotions. My most distant memories as a child have a taste of the land. The bugs of the earth, the animals, the peasants have suggestions that reach very few. I capture them now with the same spirit of my childhood years. Otherwise, I would not have been able to write Blood Wedding. So, yeah, as a child, he loved music so much and the music that feeds these songs that we hear in this beautiful, beautiful film, Blood Wedding by Carlos Sauda. And in fact, he wanted to be a musician. He studied to be a composer. Eventually, he studied with the great composer of classical music of the 20th century. There's no argument on this matter, who is Manuel de Falla. Manuel de Falla said that of all his brilliant students in musical composition, Lorca was the most talented student that he ever had. And he was also talented in painting and drawing. And so with all this talent, he majored in what? Law. And he hated studying law. <laughs> and he took 10 years. It's like almost a comic movie with John Belushi or something. He took 10 years to finally graduate after 10 years of misery. However, eventually he transferred to the great university of Madrid and he lived in the Residencia de Estudiantes. And there he started associating with these brilliant young poets that formed a new generation of poets, generation of 27. Some of them won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Many of them eventually won the major prizes of Spain, the Cervantes Prize for Literature, etc. Jorge Guillén, Pedro Salinas, Luis Cernuda, Rafael Alberti. Pablo Neruda was part of this poetic scene. Cesar Vallejo, some of the great Latin American poets as well. But especially two artists that were part of the generation, but not officially, but part of the scene, this cultural milieu for sure. Salvador Dali, the great surrealist painter, Luis Buñuel, who is the great director. I say that with a pause because I know you're an expert on Luis Buñuel. And heavily influenced pioneers of surrealism. And Greg, I might just point out real quickly that the last time we uh, spoke on this podcast that we were talking about Luis Buñuel. And, and both exactly. of us, uh, you know, kind of join our interests as well in that figure. And uh, just to, to quickly point out as well that you mentioned that Federico Garcia Lorca spent so much time studying law. Uh, people have to realize that he died really young. And so exactly. we, we also we have to lament perhaps the writings and the creations that we lost after his death but also perhaps those that we lost while he was studying law. And I assume that you'll get to that uh, because I think 
how we lost Garcia Lorca becomes one of the great and tragic stories of Spanish culture as well. So keep going. Yeah, for sure. I mean, before we forget that thread, there's so many things to talk about. All of his major works constantly find kind of a premonition of his own tragedy, of his own demise, what we call figuras lorquianas. A lot of people listening probably have read at least La Casa de Bernardo Alba. So think of Adela or also Maria Josefa, they're Lorquian figures. They're tragically brushed against this kind of machine of power and very rigid social conventions. And so eventually they pay a terrible price. This kind of character, of course, is in everything Lorca writes practically. And in this work, it has a name. He is Leonardo, but we'll get to that in a second. Just in a nutshell, his career and his life, his publications tended to be more along the lines of very inspired by music of the Gypsies, of Andalusia. He uh, wrote a collection in the 20s called Poema de Cantejondo, although it was published in the 30s. But in 1928, he published a work called Romancero Gitano, the Gypsy Ballads, influenced by these incredible songs and refrains and poetry that he heard as a child. And in 1928, he became super famous in Spain, worldwide, and Romancero Gitano became the most translated and most published book of Spanish poetry in the history of Spanish poetry. He got so famous that it became uncomfortable. Everywhere he, he went, people were taking pictures. And especially devastating was the fact that his group of avant-garde poets, Generation 27, especially the circle of friends, including his closest two friends, Salvador Dali and Luis Buñuel, basically stabbed him in the back. They started bad-mouthing him. They started even saying negative things about Lorca to the press. They said he was a country simpleton, that he was a sellout, that he wasn't. They were avant-garde means, as you know, moving forward. He was moving backward. And so, of course, nowadays we realize that they were very, very wrong, that there were touches of the avant-garde throughout this poetry, especially on Romancero Gitana in works like Romance Sunambulo, Dream Walker Romance, I think is the translation the famous poem with Verde que te quiero verde. At any rate, really quickly, he went to another country to escape from all this. He went to the United States and he enrolled in Columbia University and he started studying English. And he was a terrible student. In spite of his great, great genius, he could not learn English at all. <laughs> but he was befriended by a young poet named Philip Cummings who would take him to Vermont to be with his family. And he enjoyed that. He enjoyed walking to nearby Harlem, Columbia University. As everybody knows, it's very close to Harlem. I think it's in Harlem, actually, in fact. And he would go to jazz clubs, and he met writers from the Harlem Renaissance in the 1920s at that time, early 30s, like Nilla Larson. And, um, yeah, he enjoyed the music of these floor shows in Harlem, music of Cab Calloway, probably, perhaps Duke Ellington he heard, we think. At any rate, uh, he loved all that, but he hated his experience in New York, we think, because he wrote these very dissonant poems that were published after he died, which form a collection called Poeta in New York, Poet in New York. And he was traumatized, we think, by the falling out with his very close friends, whom he loved dearly, Dali and Buñuel, and especially because he enrolled in Columbia University when? The fall of 1929. And what happens in the fall of 1929? the famous Wall Street crash. And so he wrote home saying he saw people jumping out windows. Maybe he was embellishing a bit, but he saw traumatic, horrible things. So that poetry is very avant-garde, very surrealist, 
I think he surpasses Dali and Buñuel with his surless chops in that collection and also the couple of shorter dramatic works which he wrote, which are very, very avant-garde, dissonant. Así que pasan cinco años and El Público works so dissonant that only in recent years have they finally found kind of productions and interest in scholarship, etc. So eventually, after a year and a half in New York City in the very early 30s, he travels back to Spain. He goes through Cuba. He loved Cuba. He loved the people there the people of color. He loved, absolutely adored the musical rhythms as he loved jazz. He said that the black people in Harlem and the black people in Cuba had duende. Duende is his artistic idea of like a kind of a force or a kind of inspiration that's rhythmic, that's dark, that's tragic, and yet it's cool. He thought, he thought all these experiences were cool. He didn't think the white people in New York City were cool at all. He thought they were awful. And so he goes through Cuba and he returns to Spain in 1931, and his batteries are recharged. He formed a group of basically young students called La Barraca. They traveled around Spain. They got funding from the Spanish Republic. Spain was a republic only five years of its history, 31 to 36, before the Spanish Civil War broke out. And the fascists took over, basically. And uh, they traveled around the countryside. He was the artistic director. He would act sometimes. He would direct the plays or at least produce the plays. He would travel around constantly putting on Spanish classic plays from the Golden Age, mostly. Works like Fuente Ovejuna de Lope de Vega, La Vida Sueña, Life is a Dream by Calderón de la Barca. And so all this kind of fed into his final phase before he was murdered by the fascists. He was also reading a lot of ancient Greek tragedies works that often had female protagonists, strong women. So basically, he's writing a lot. His production's unreal. Like, how could he do all these things at once before he died? But he managed to write his three great masterpieces for the theater, which we call the Rural Tragedy or Tragic Trilogy. Bola de Sangre, the work for today, this week. Yerma, the second work in the trilogy, both featuring strong, tragic women's voices, and in the same direction, La Casa de Bernal Alba. He was writing a draft of La Casa de Bernal Alba when in July of 1936, the Spanish Civil War broke out. And by August, he was murdered by the fascist, hanging out, hiding in the home of a friend who was actually a fascist poet. He loved everybody. He had friends that were conservatives, liberals, and yet, ironically, perhaps he trusted people too much, and that caused his demise. And so... This is a great, great the story, his works, his life history, a great inspiration for the artists that we see on the screen for Blood Wedding by Carlos Saura. Antonio Gades is, without a doubt, the great star of flamenco dancing in Spain of the 20th century. He's like Fred Astaire or Gene Kelly in Broadway musical dancing. Like, he is the guy. And in 1971, Gades, so inspired by Lorca that Early on in the film, he says to his assistant, Jose, Jose, where's the picture? And they bring him a picture, and he puts it in the mirror. It's a picture of Lorca with the students, La Barraca, in one moment where they're traveling in the autobus. And so all this is so inspirational to him that after producing for many years shows that were folkloric ballet, it's like a hybrid of flamenco dancing with kind of more refined, studied, measured classical ballet, dancing. So after years of having productions along these lines, his very first work, which was narrative in form, was an adaptation in the early 70s of Blood Wedding, Blood Sangre. 
and this caused much success for him. It was borrowed by dance troops from around the world, Latin America, even in Cuba. They produced it, other dance companies, but he had his own dance company. And basically in the late 70s, somehow Carlos Sauda, the great director, he's the third person in this history that you mentioned at the outset. Carlos Sauda, one of the great, great Spanish film directors, always called one of the great or big three of Spanish film directors, Luis Buñuel, whom we've mentioned already, Lorca's close friend, and Pedro Almodovar. Well, he's the third and equally great film director. At any rate, uh, Carlos Sauda, his early films are kind of art house films. When he saw Gades and his company in a production, actually a rehearsal of Bolo Sesang in the late 70s, he was transfixed. He was mesmerized. And they asked him, would you be willing to film this play? And he was, yes, immediately said, I would love to do this. But he wanted to do it in his own terms, and he wanted to somehow recapture not a performance of the play, per se, but a rehearsal, the same rehearsal that he saw. And so that's what we're seeing on the screen. And it's the first of a trilogy of dance films, which he did with Antonio Gades. This is the very first one. And uh, yeah, he's trying to kind of capture this awe and wonder that he experienced as he saw this dance troupe in a rehearsal of Bolas de Sangre in the late 70s. And so the film came out in 1981. It was ready for months. They only had like a 30-minute film. And they started thinking, what can we do to kind of stretch this out? So someone started thinking, obviously Sauda and company, what can we do? And they came upon the idea of a documentary introduction. So the first 25 minutes or so is of precisely the dancers entering into the rehearsal space the dressing room, basically, putting on their makeup, hearing their thoughts, but it's very kind of meta-cinematic. It's kind of a meditation on what it is to be a dancer, and we hear their thoughts, sometimes as voiceovers or in dialogue, talking about the craft of producing these beautiful masterworks, these theatrical productions of Bolas de Sangre. At that moment, later on, he did many other ones before he died a few years ago. So that's Sauda. Gades and Buñuel in a nutshell. And I think that you've hit on one of the things that I most like about this film. I'm a huge fan of Lorca. He's just so amazing. And if you get a chance to read Blood Wedding, you should do so. But I actually watch this particular adaptation of that, that play of that tragedy in large measure to watch the first part of the film that you mentioned and to see how this film is a meta-cinematic reflection on what it means to be a dancer, to create a work. And I really, in fact, think that the most enjoyable part of the film are the first 25 minutes or so. And so I'd encourage the audience to really just be pulled in by this preparation for the film. And Greg, I was kind of hoping that uh, maybe in the time that we have remaining, that we might talk about this film as film. You know, what are some of the things that the audience should look for and really enjoy? This is a very short film. It's only about 67 minutes long. And like we've just mentioned, the actual story of the blood wedding is only about maybe 35 or so minutes long. So what are some of the things that you see within the film that uh, would really bring somebody in who's uh, just coming off the street and wants to see good filmmaking? Yeah, maybe we can start precisely with the opening 
series of scenes in the dressing room as they take out their makeup and make up their face and talk. <laughs> At first, it's very jarring. I remember the first time I saw this film in a film seminar in the, to date myself, ourselves, in the 90s at UC Irvine. And I remember watching the film, and 10 minutes into it, I thought the professor was on a trip. He left the film with us, and I thought, are we watching the right film? Because <laughs> I knew about Blood Wedding. I'd read that play. I knew the basic storyline. I thought, what is this? These people put on makeup talking. I think it's a brilliant realization of meta, right? In this case, metafiction, but also meta cinema or meta dance. It's what is meta? Meta, as people know, taking classes with us probably means self-referential kinds of art forms, right? Art about art, right? Cinema about cinema. And a story within a story as well. Right. And in Spanish works, at least, there's always a nod to the great pioneers of metafiction, precisely. There are other ones, but it's especially Miguel de Cervantes, who basically put on the map in world literature with Don Quixote de la Mancha, right? And also Diego de Velázquez, Diego Velázquez, rather, Las Meninas, and other works where you find the artist painting a picture that we're seeing at that very moment, if we go to the Prado, which we've done recently with our students here in Study Abroad. And so something to look out for in this first 20 minutes of the film precisely is something that we almost always see with metafiction, which is mise en abîme, frame within a frame, right? And kind of a jarring use of mise en abîme, a jarring use of voiceover. There's a part which always moves me emotionally when Antonio Gades talks about his life story. And he says, when I started to dance, it was born out of necessity from hunger. I wanted to study, but that was impossible. So I had to work. And he talks about being a luggage porter, an ABC newspaper kind of grunge worker, a boxer, a cyclist. And then he says, quote, everything changed when a neighbor suggested dancing. And yet it's kind of jarring because he's putting on his makeup. He's looking in the mirror. The voice doesn't seem to kind of equate to what we're seeing on the screen. But I think that's a use, a brilliant use or realization of metafiction. Metafiction since the great pioneers of Cervantes and Velázquez, is always art about art, art that makes us question, right? What is art? What is reality? What is dance? In this case, I think Sada is, <laughs> is making us ponder, like, what is cinema? So as you walk into this film and see these opening sequences, maybe think, like, is this actually cinema? Is this a movie? Is this a dance movie? Because it's way different than a Broadway musical, like even contemporary ones like La La Land, which are more kind of metafictional and postmodern, way different. And yet I think it's a brilliant realization of cinema. And then like these little metafictional touches are really brilliant. For example, as we start seeing the production finally of Bose Sangre, which lasts less than 30 minutes, a few minutes into it, a woman wearing modern clothes, like blue jeans and a sweater or whatever, starts singing this song to accompany the mother character and her baby, the wife of Leonardo. Like, who is this woman? <laughs> but again, it's this metafictional touch. If you do a little research on the matter, you realize that she's Marisol. So for the Spanish audience, it's like seeing Madonna or Beyonce <laughs> on the side of the film. Like a major, major star of cinema, of television, of music. Marisol just happened to be, and she's still living, the partner of Antonio Gades. And so these kind of jarring moments, again, make us 
question, like, what is going on here? What is cinema? Can cinema actually do something like this and not be like what we normally see at the multiplexes, you know, like science fiction adventures or action movies or romantic comedies? This is way different than anything we normally see. And I might point out as well, Greg, that, uh, you know, this is this is a movie about dance. And in fact, in 1981, uh, many people considered it to be the best film about dance that there was at the time. And of course, you might think of a number of films about dance. But one of the things that I really like about the film and this connection to the idea of meta and meta cinema, meta fiction, a play within a play and just being aware, self-conscious about the fact that we are creating art is that the film includes many different types of art. Uh, In fact, I would uh, suggest that we can even connect it to the concept of ekphrasis. Frequently, people will will define as only being literature that describes a work of art, right? Perhaps a poem that describes a Grecian urn, for example. But more globally, you can say that uh, ekphrasis is any form of art that tries to recreate another form of art. And as you watch this film and notice that we're talking about a play, Garcia Lorca's original Bodas de Sangre, Blood Wedding, but it also includes music. It also includes dance. It includes ballet. Perhaps we could even say that there's a bit of opera in here. It has a theater and it has film and even photography. In fact, uh, you mentioned uh, the picture that uh, is placed on the mirror, and there are, there are a number of pictures that flow throughout the film. But one of my favorite scenes of all in this film is a moment where just at the beginning of Blood Wedding, or as the wedding party comes together, all of a sudden they do a freeze frame, and we see that the film has become a static image. In other words, film has become photography, has become play, has become theater, has become a ballet, has become dance. And so I think what you're saying is absolutely right, that if you see this as a play on multiple creative platforms, that I think that the film becomes a real joy to watch. Yeah, totally. And in doing that, they're really giving a huge nod to Lorca. They're kind of saying that Dali, Buñuel, his close friends that turn on him were totally wrong. Because if you do a little research on the original productions in Madrid in the mid-30s before Lorca died, you know, they had the folkloric music and the kind of gypsy-influenced musical culture and poetic culture. But at the same time, the set designs were very avant-garde, influenced by Cubism, influenced by surrealism, done by avant-garde contemporary radical artists. And so, yeah, the original production was a brilliant mesh as well. And I think the whole thing kind of comes to a beautiful crescendo. At the sorry spoiler, if you <laughs> haven't seen it yet, but not really. When finally Leonardo and the bridegroom have this awful knife fight, which is also you know realized in the play, but so differently. It turns it on its head. In the play, we don't see the knife fight, right? We see the aftermath, right? We see the bodies, which are literally right <laughs> carried onto the stage. The uh, bride, in other words, the widow now, stained with blood in her white dress. And the film realizes a lot of that, the same color palettes at the very beginning, right? With the that photograph is seen in the opening credits and the final credits, essentially black and white. It almost feels like a black and white film. So when blood intrudes into the mise-en-scene, right? It's like shocking. It's radical. Blood wedding, right? The title itself is white with horrific red. But that knife fight is so brilliant and so... <laughs> meta cinematic right because basically 
they slow way down, right? And again, that's another thing that perhaps a modern audience in the United States might think this is so bizarre and weird. And man, take me to the Avengers or something, or you know, the multiplex to see a real action movie. And yet it's so suspenseful, so beautiful. And when they slow way down, why do they slow down? Because it's a nod to cinema, right? Because only cinema normally will slow the action down, right? And then they start speeding up. And of course, the horrific climax of Ultimate Murder, but it's all beautifully realized, right, in flamenco ballet dance style. But uh, yeah, it, it's so brilliant. And again, everything is so Lorcan, but in sophisticated, complicated, surprising ways, right? Yeah, I love your point that it like had all the art forms, right? For the film, of course, they couldn't use even a portion of so many songs that you hear in the original, you know, version on stage or reading it, right? It's song after song after song, but they had to really alight it. And it still kind of has the same framework of the original in that, for example, the great Lorcan specialist who has visited BYU a couple of times in the past few years, C. Brian Morris, has said that we began with a nana. What's a nana? It's a, a song for babies, right? It's a cradle song. This kind of is interesting because it's kind of conveying the stages of life, right? Birth, lullaby, my baby. Lullaby, baby, lullaby. I, the big horse, who would not drink the water. You may think this is like so radical and weird, but this was basically an adaptation of a very, very famous, Lorca said it's the most famous nana in Andalusia, this one about the horse. And yet it's so perfect for the play because the horse becomes a symbol, especially in the movie, even more than the play, of Leonardo himself, who's like this crazy Dionysian anti-social <laughs> character, right? I mean, what kind of person would go to his ex-girlfriend's wedding and when no one's looking, sweep her off her feet, get her on a horse and drive her right out into the forest, right? And then, of course, in the play, there's a plethora of like wedding songs. And also in this film version, they had to light a lot of these songs, but awake, O bride, awaken, you'll hear this. And so that kind of conveys, according to Morris, like, you know, middle life, we're in our inner prime. And in the very end, it's kind of a surprise if you know the play, because the play has a lot of death dirges. And basically, they speed up that wedding song and make some alterations. And so they start clapping their hands, and it gets really fast. And that conveys, of course, the climax, the eventual knife fight, and the fleeing of the forest on Horus, the two lovebirds. For the bridegroom is like the dove. The wheel is spinning. The water flowed on by. So everything kind of speeds up. At any rate, like formally, the music goes hand in hand with the action. And so it may be kind of hard to follow, but basic story is kind of straightforward. And Lorca based it, surprise, on this tabloid kind of story that appeared in the newspapers in 1928 in the ABC newspaper in Madrid and other newspapers about this horrible crime, which basically is the story of Blood Wedding with some minor alterations. That there was this young woman that on her wedding day, her ex-boyfriend swept off her feet. Actually, he was her cousin. And a family member murdered not both of them, but murdered just the man who swept off her feet and the boyfriend. And then she left the rest of her life in solitude, hounded by the press. And so it is a very tragic tale, but somewhat different. Only one murder instead of a double murder. At any rate, yeah, it's a fascinating, fascinating work. Great. Well, thank you, Greg. I think that our our listeners can perhaps hear that it's a short movie, 67 minutes long, that it's a different movie than they're probably 
expecting or used to, but that if you'll give your attention to those 67 minutes, there's so much to see, so much to feel, so much to enjoy in this great film, Blood Wedding, by director Carlos Saura, based on the play by Federico Garcia Lorca. And I'd like to thank our listeners today as well. And uh, just remind you that this podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here as they do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. We thank our producer, Devin Glenn, our sound engineer, Marina Hegstrom-Pratt, and Johnny Stallings, Greg's son, who composed our podcast soundtrack. Visit ic.byu.edu for upcoming films and showtimes. And until next week, keep seeing great international movies.